You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. Uh, If you don't know where that is or you've forgotten somehow, uh, take your Bible, open up straight to the middle, and what you'll find is you're probably in the book of Psalms or Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs. Uh, Let me just quickly introduce myself. My name is Ian Hales, and I am the uh, lead pastor at Redemption Church in the Durham region, formerly Harvest Bible Chapel Durham region. We are a sister church of yours, and uh, for those of you who don't know, we are actually um, related in a very special way. We were a church plant that kind of came out of Harvest Bible Chapel York region almost nine years ago. Uh, God has given us the privilege of having some sweet relationships uh, and a relationship with you that is really precious. In fact, uh, Pastor Paul and Pastor George were uh, elders alongside me as our church got started, and we are incredibly thankful for the the relationships from this church that helped us uh, get going, and God has been incredibly faithful. So I bring you greetings from our church family to yours, and uh, and we've also had the privilege, uh, myself and my wife Sarah, of recently getting to to know uh, your new pastor, Pastor Jason and his wife Janie. We recently had a meal with them, and we're so encouraged and blessed by our fellowship with them. And uh, one thing was so clear to us uh, that God has called them to this place and that God is going to use them greatly in this place. We hope you're encouraged. Um, There's such a a sweet disposition about Jason and his wife, Janie, and there's such a humility um, and a love for the Lord and a love for the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that stood out to us was simply their desire to see God use them here uh, for the good of you and the body of Christ and for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. It's a sweet privilege to be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a really sweet joy to be a part of the the community of faith, is it not? And I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about community, about relationships. And the Word of God, and specifically this morning, the book of Ecclesiastes, has a lot to say to us about the importance of community and the importance of relationships. It's really interesting to consider um, the culture we live in. We are living right now in one of the most interconnected times in human history, aren't we? I mean, the, the internet and technology, the rise of social media and a variety of platforms have enabled us to stay connected with one another in such incredible ways. I mean, we can have face-to-face conversations right now in an instant with somebody on the other side of the world. We can stay connected with people that we've met at different points in our own lives and in our own histories. And yet, yet what studies are repeatedly showing is that while we live in one of the most interconnected times in history, we are also living, relationally speaking, in one of the most disconnected times in history. In fact, all of these social media platforms, uh, research is beginning to come out right now. I read a study uh, just this past week that was published in USA Today about uh, the harm of social media and social media platforms, particularly in youth. And it was this five-year study where they tracked um, how people felt about their relationships. These youth felt about their relationships at the beginning of study and how they felt at the end of this five-year study. And what they saw was a rise in this disconnected feeling 
a sense of loneliness that was growing, a sense of isolation that was being bred, and they connected deeply to the increasing use of social media in terms of a relational outlet. It's fascinating to consider that the very things that are supposed to increase our social networking are making us more and more antisocial. Today, it's possible to have thousands of friends on Facebook and yet at the same time have no friends in our very neighborhood. We see all around us a longing for community, but at the same time, we seem to be missing the true essence of community. One of the dangers of the kind of community that we experience, especially online community, is that what's presented leads to superficial relationships in community, right? We present uh, the best picture of ourselves or the picture that we want other people to embrace about us, but rarely do they get to see the true us. They get to see a veneer or a facade, an outward picture of who we want them to perceive us as. But that, all that does is breed a superficiality and it avoids a kind of authenticity and transparency that leads to true, genuine relationships. But you see, the struggle with relationships and community is an age-old struggle. It's what life is like under the sun. Under the sun is the, the phrase that Solomon, or the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, uses time and time again to describe life here on this earth, but specifically life apart from God. So if you, you look at this world as all there is and remove God from the equation, that is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes refers to as life under the sun. It's life here and now with no God in the picture. And the book of Ecclesiastes forces us to consider some of the deeper issues of life. It's considered wisdom literature. And it presses us to consider questions like, what is the point of life? What is the purpose of life? Where can I find meaning and satisfaction in life? And it addresses the fundamental questions of existence. The preacher in Ecclesiastes tests out all different kinds of worldly ways to find meaning, to find purpose, to find satisfaction, and every single one of them proves empty. Life under the sun, apart from God, ultimately is futile. It's vanity. It's meaningless. And so the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants to bring God back into the picture for us to show us where we find true meaning and purpose. And one of the things that he presents to us in our text this morning is that true meaning and purpose in this life is actually found in the context of community. We are created for community. And if we're to enjoy true community, which I hope you long to do, then we must do a few things. The first thing we need to do is found in the first few verses, and that is this, flee the sinful destroyer of community, covetousness. Let's look at the text together. Let me read the entire section. We're gonna read from verse four all the way to the end. Here's what the preacher says. He says, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handful of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity. Vanity. 
And an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This passage drives us to consider community and calls us to enjoy true community, but we need to see first the dangers of, uh, of preventing true community or of destroying true community. And here we see that covetousness or envy is one of the crucial things that can disrupt community and completely and utterly destroy it. He begins in verses four and following to unpack this picture for us. And what he does is he reminds us of why we often work so hard, why we often live for work. Now, envy, it's important to understand, really is a part of the same family as covetousness and jealousy. Envy can kind of be described or defined like this. It's simply desiring what somebody else has. Some of you may be inclined to think, well, that can't be that bad. And the world around us, the culture around us, certainly promotes this idea that you need to kind of be driven by this desire. There is this kind of self-interest that is actually healthy because it fuels the economy. It's an engine that drives the capitalist economy, we are told. But the book of Ecclesiastes here sees a deeper motivation at work in our hearts. A motivation that comes really from a selfish heart a self-obsessed and a self-consumed heart. Now, let me just kind of qualify that. Envy is not the only reason that we work. We work for a variety of good reasons. Uh, we need provisions. We need to eat. We need to take care of those in our lives. But I think many of us miss this vital point. So many of us are working so hard and giving our lives to our work because we are being driven by envy and covetousness. Envy and covetousness are often linked with status and identity. You think about that for a moment in your own life. You want what other people have because you care about what they think of you. Because you want them to think well of you, to think that you are successful or that you've arrived. Envy and covetousness have a way of exposing our hearts and revealing what we treasure most you see, what you want most, who you want to be most like, really identifies the idols of your own heart. Um, for some of you, maybe you're striving and you're working really hard for beauty, external beauty. You want people to appreciate how you look and you're constantly comparing yourselves to others. You're looking at media and you're wanting to mimic those who are considered beautiful in our culture and in our world. Some of you, maybe it's skill. 
You want to be known for how well you do something, how good you are at something, whether it's athletics or whether it's in your industry or career or whether it's in your home as a mother or parent. For some of you, it's power or reputation or wealth. You're working so hard because you measure yourself by these things. And one of the ways we can see that envy and covetousness have a grip on our hearts is when we see someone else who is praised for the things that we desire to have. Oftentimes it produces within us a sinful response or reaction. I I love what Gore Vidal said. He said this, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Isn't that true? Like, you know, you, got, you all experience this just like I do, right? You all have those friends who go on these extravagant vacations and they post all of their photos online. They're walking along a beautiful beach in a bathing suit while you're sitting here in Canada freezing like crazy. And part of you is like, oh, look at you. I'm so thankful you got to get away on a vacation, but really I despise you. Or something pulls out our hearts because we don't have something that they do. We want what they have. And see, God is, is revealing something about our own hearts that we need to pay attention to. We love to have what others have. And this is the vicious cycle of humanity. This is nothing new. And, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes has told us earlier in this book that there's nothing new under the sun. This isn't a contemporary issue. This is a human issue. Someone um, once said that the world is full of Joneses trying to keep up with other Joneses. But you see, here's the problem with this. When our community is driven by competition, we end up resenting one another and not relating to one another. It's impossible to love your neighbor if you're constantly trying to compete with your neighbor. It conflicts with the very call of what it means to live in Christian community, in God's community. It actually kills community. And the greatest problem with covetousness and envy, by the way, is that it is actually an affront against our God. We view it oftentimes as a horizontal issue with other people, but the primary issue here is that it is a vertical issue. It's an affront against God. I mean, just track with me for a moment. When you're looking at what somebody else has and covetousness is creeping up in your heart, it begins something like this. Man, I really want what they have. I'm going to work so hard to get what they have. I want the same kind of house the same kind of car, the same kind of clothes, whatever it is. But ultimately, what you're you're saying, especially if you know God and you love God, what you're saying is this, God, uh, why why don't I have what they have? Pretty soon you start to get frustrated. You start to say, God, why do they deserve that and not me? God, am I not trying to serve you, God? Don't you love me too? Why can't you give me what they have? Pretty soon it spirals down into something like this, God, Don't you really love me? God, maybe you're not that good after all. God, this is your fault that I don't have what they have. Now, I know we never say things like that, but you need to see that in our covetousness and envy, what we're really saying to God is, God, you're not good enough for me, and what you've given me is not good enough for me. I think covetousness and envy are... 
very much what Jerry Bridges kind of coins as respectable sins. You know, you know what a respectable sin is? A respectable sin is a, is a little sin, a sin that we don't pay much attention to, a sin that we don't think is that big of a deal, a, a sin that we, we think, ah, you know, it's not like the bigger sins in my life, so I'm not going to pay much attention to it. And so what happens is that these respectable fins, sins, they, they linger in our lives, we never deal with them, and they begin actually to corrode us from the inside, they eat away at us from the inside, as a pastor, I can tell you this, that people come up to me oftentimes and they want to talk about different struggles they're having in their life. They want to confess things and they want help dealing with things. I cannot tell you the last time somebody walked up to me and said, Pastor, I really need your prayer and I need some help. I'm really struggling with envy and covetousness. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you found yourself repenting of the sin of envy or covetousness? If you're anything like me, I mean, I can't remember the last time I repented of covetousness and envy, and yet I know it's there. I mean, it, it must have been a long, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I had to prepare this message, and the Lord convicted me, so it was really recent. But before that, I can't remember the last time I repented of this sin, and maybe, maybe you're in the same boat, and maybe what the Lord wants to do first in your heart is to convict you. You know, you're destroying relationships in your life because you're driven by covetousness and envy, and the place you need to get to this morning right now is repentance and confession. Simply by saying, Lord, forgive me. But you see, God wants to move you to a place of health in your relationships and a place of health in this specific area of your life. So let's just consider the antidote for a moment. He, he addresses this idea of envy, and he says it's vanity. It doesn't lead anywhere good. It's striving after the wind. We're never content anyways. But look, he gives us the antidote in verses 5 and 6. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What in the world does that mean? That's got to be one of the strangest verses in the Bible. And then he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. The verse there where it talks about folding hands and eating flesh is, is, is a vivid picture, listen, of the lazy individual. Okay, so he's saying the answer is not in laziness. So he said, look, if your problem is you work too much to get what other people have, don't go to the opposite extreme and become lazy. That's incredibly foolish. The lazy person self-cannibalizes themselves, okay? The idea there is this, that they, they, they end up kind of ruining their life. They destroy their life in their laziness. They have nothing to show for it. We're not called to be lazy and idle, and instead, verse 6, we notice we're given kind of that place between the, the workaholic and the idle person, the lazy person, and it's somewhere in the middle, but it's driven by this heart issue. In a word, here it is, contentment. The, the antidote to envy and covetousness is contentment. And you see, the quiet person here is the peaceful person. It's the composed person. It's not the frantic person always trying to get more anxious about what they don't have and what they think they need. Rather than always striving for more or doing nothing at all, this person learns contentment. It's a powerful picture here. The contrast is reinforced by the difference here between having a single hand full and having two hands full. Can you see the imagery there? I mean, the person with two hands full is the person who's never satisfied. They're always wanting more. So, so, you know, so they're reaching for something, and the moment they get it, they realize it's not enough, so they reach for something else, and the moment they don't realize it, it's not fulfilling, it's not satisfied, they're reaching for more, and they're gathering, 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 two hands full, never satisfied, as opposed and contrasted with the person, listen, who reaches out and grabs what God has graciously given them and is content, listen, to have enough from God 
that they don't feel the constant pressure to have to keep reaching for more. Listen, some of you are reaching so hard for more, 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 and you're failing to realize how good God has been to you. And what God is calling you towards even this morning is this place of contentment, listen, that will fuel relationships, that will enable you to be freed of the pursuit of this world and instead pursue something better and more satisfying in community and relationships. You say, well, what happens if I, if I don't do this? What happens if I just keep reaching for more? Here's what happens. You will sacrifice community. That's what he's getting at here. You're going to give up something greater for something lesser. And you're going to end up, listen, if this is the pursuit of your life, like so many who have gone before you and I, you'll end up uh, relationally bankrupt. So here's the second point that we need to see in this text this morning. If we're going to enjoy true community, we must fear the subtle distancing from community Loneliness. This is the picture of isolation that happens when we're constantly pursuing the world and materialism and stuff for satisfaction, for meaning, and for purpose. It leaves us utterly and totally bankrupt, and we miss out on the best parts of this life. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says again, I saw vanity under the sun. That's his way of saying meaninglessness, purposelessness. He saw something that was empty, and he says this in verse 8, one person has no other, either son or brother. You have to catch the gravity of the picture he paints here. This is an individual who has given themselves to their work and the pursuit of the things of this world, and they have no family and no friends at the end of it. It's a sad sad picture that is intended to grip our heart. And notice again, he drives home why this is the case, yet there is no end to all his toil. He still wants more. He's still looking for more, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, listen, the most important questions of all, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? All this work, all this stuff, it's not giving me what I long for, and instead I'm sacrificing He says, this also is vanity in an unhappy business. At the end of the day, this man has worked so hard, but listen, here's here's the problem. He's got nothing and no one to share it with. No one else to share in his success, in his wealth, in the stuff that he's accumulated, in the things he's worked so hard for. He finds himself in the absence of community and in total isolation. Isolation is such a massive problem in our culture, and again, it's increasing, I I think, because of um, the online pseudo-community that we, we often attempt to experience. And isolation is one of the most frustrating and painful things a human being can go through. Sometimes isolation is not our fault. It's a result of circumstances in life, some things that are outside of our control, things like illness and sickness and geography, whatever it may be. But but here what you need to see is that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is pointing us towards a self-inflicted isolation. And what he is telling us is the vast majority of loneliness and isolation we experience in this life is often self-imposed. It's self-inflicted. It's a result of our own sinful pursuits and desires. In our isolation, oftentimes, 
We realize we have no friends, we have no relationships. But one of the things I hear often, even as a pastor, and you probably hear this as well, that when people talk about community and relationships, one of the the things they often say is, you know, especially the workaholic as is being painted here, I'm just too busy, right? I'm too busy for relationships. I'm too busy to get involved with people's lives. I mean, I've just got so much on my plate. I, I can't be doing that. If I have to hear one more story about a father who has said to their children, look, I'm working so hard so that I can give you the life I never had. I want more for you. That's why you never see me. That's why I'm at work so much. Listen, if that's you today, listen, you need to hear this. What your kids need from you, what your grandkids need from you, what your spouse needs from you, what your friends need from you is not more from you, but more of you. Stop sacrificing what is lesser for something that is so much greater. I can't tell you how many times I've heard as a pastor, you know, as I'm trying to get people involved in the community, the life of the church, into relationships in the local church, you know, people just say, ah, pastor, I'm just, I would love to, but I'm too busy. I'll just kind of show up on Sunday when I can. I've got so much on the go in my life. I'm too busy. I've got my kids in all these sports, so I can't be involved in community. Um, I've got my own hobbies and interests that I'm really, really invested in, and I'm too busy. You know, my work is consuming my life right now. I'm just too busy. And you need to hear this. If that's you, that is self-inflicted isolation. And you are short-circuiting the power of community and relationships in your life. I'll often hear people say things like this. You know, it's just a season of life. And to be fair, there are seasons of life we go through, right? There are seasons of life where it makes relationships a little bit more challenging, involvement in things that are precious to us more challenging. And I understand that, and I've got a ton of grace for that. But I want to encourage you, if you are accustomed to saying the words, it's just a season of life, you need to be careful that a season of life does not become the story of your life. Seasons are supposed to come to an end, aren't they? (laughs) The preacher is telling us that there are more important things of life. Hear hear the message here, okay? There are more important things to life than your success, than your reputation, than the stuff you can accumulate. It will never provide for you the meaning and satisfaction that you long for. So much of the enjoyment of this life is to be found in community, in relationships. And here the person finds themselves asking right now the question that we need to be asking. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? am I working so hard for? Who am I working for? Why do we do this? Why do we sacrifice a greater things for lesser things, when it's, especially when it comes to work and, and the pursuit of stuff? Here's one of the reasons, listen, because we are so self-sufficient. It's so dangerous when we get to this place of, of self-sufficiency, and yet this is so common to the human heart. We are so self-sufficient. In fact, there's a, a built-in story here, illustration of, of a self-sufficient individual. Look at verse 13 for a second. Verse 13, the preacher writes this, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. It's contrasting two individuals here, but I want you just to notice this. Did you realize what made this king so foolish? He no longer knew how to take advice. That that is a statement of self-sufficiency. I don't need you. I don't need your input. I don't need your thoughts. I don't need your correction. I've got this all figured out. That's the picture here. 
That is a very dangerous place to be. And this king ends up spiraling out of control. And here he's contrasted with a wise young youth who clearly was willing to take advice and to take counsel. But, but here's what I want to say to some of you in here today, and if you're not here yet, you may get here one day, so be very careful, but the reason some of you live in isolation is because you don't like to be corrected. And I understand correction and being challenged is a very difficult thing. And in our flesh, we, we resist it, we buck up against it, and we're inclined to do a few things when, uh, when somebody wants to correct us or exhort us or challenge us, and maybe in our sinfulness, here's the way we often will respond. We will shut people off, right? Somebody wants to correct us, we just shut them off. I don't want to hear this from you. Just keep it to yourself. I don't need it. Thank you very much. Or we move to this place of telling people off, right? You got something to say to me? Good. I've been storing this up for a little while. I got something to say to you, right? You think I got a problem, you should take a look at yourself. Let me help you out. Or listen, or listen, listen. Sometimes in our sinfulness, we get to the place where we cut people off. Where the people who want to challenge us, challenge us and exhort us and come alongside us and they do it in a loving and gracious. Listen, we are so sick. We don't want to hear it. We think we've got it all figured out that our response is to cut them off. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Be very, very careful. Proverbs 18.1 should be on the screen Beside me there says this, listen to this. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He's obsessed with self. But look at this. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The person who is unwilling to receive correction and to be challenged is ultimately a fool. That's what Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says. A fool despises wisdom and instruction. We are so good at avoiding correction in our lives, and yet this is one of the beautiful benefits of community to promote us uh, to greater degrees of godliness. We come up with all kinds of excuses for why we don't want to be in community that is going to sharpen us and challenge us and confront us in areas where we need to be confronted. I hear all kinds of excuses all the time uh, as a pastor, and I'm sure I've made some of these myself. I I mean, just think about it in the context of, of community groups or small groups in the church. You hear people saying this, well, you know what? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really need these people in my life. Me and God, we're doing just fine. Right? Or, or we say things like, you know what? I don't really know these people, so I don't think they can really challenge me on anything in my life. Well, yeah, they got to get to know you. Or we, we get really superficial and we say, you know what? I don't really have much in common with these people. You know, I'm into a bunch of different things. I mean, like I got different hobbies. I got different interests. And so I don't have much in common with this group of people. Or we're different ages. So what really, what value do they have for me and for my life? Or sadly, we get to places where we say things like this. You know what? Uh, these people are not like me. But by the way, I don't really like these people. Like these people are weird. And, and, and I'm not. Everybody's weird but me, right? Like that's, <laughs> is it, listen, is it possible, this is maybe a principle you need to embrace today if you want to enjoy the benefits of community. Is it possible that you are your own worst community problem? We want to excuse it and look to other people all the time and make it about other people, but really that's just revealing our own heart. And one of the things we need to grapple with and embrace is that we are so very often our own greatest relationship and community problem. We are. I mean, it's important to understand that while you may think other people are weird, I'm dead serious, you're weird too. 
okay? Like, I'm pretty convinced that in the church, we need to just embrace this idea. We're, we're all pretty weird people. If you look around, like, you guys are great people, and I appreciate that. And I can say this because you're not my church, and you're not going to storm after, I'm sure. You're pretty weird, okay? And so am I. <laughs> we all got quirks, right? We all got things that are strange and different, but that's actually the beauty. The diversity of the body of Christ is something very precious, we ought to introduce ourselves in the church. You know, when we do our fellowship time and we introduce ourselves to new people, we ought to start with saying, hey, my name's Ian. I just want you to know I'm pretty weird. Welcome to church. <laughs> we ought to just embrace this reality. And, and by the way, if you don't like being weird, you will not like being a Christian, okay? Christianity is weird to the world around us, is it not? It's foolishness, the word of God says, to the world around us. People look at us and say, you guys are, what you do, you're gathering together on a Sunday to sing a bunch of songs to a God you can't see. You're weird. We believe in a God who created all of this and all of us who stepped into his creation as a human being who lived a perfect sinless life, who died a death in the place of sinners, suffering the wrath of God, who rose from the dead, who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, who sits on a throne and who will come again one day to judge the living and the dead and rule in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. That is awesome, but it is weird. It is true, by the way. You see, we're so consumed with ourselves, not realizing that we are often our own greatest community problem. And as a result, while we long to know others and for them to know us, we hide ourselves from others. We isolate ourselves. We experience loneliness. We don't want them to see our faults. We don't want them to see our failures. We don't want to share our problems. We don't want to be told hard things. We don't want to be challenged and exhorted, and we certainly don't want to be rebuked. And so instead, listen, we settle for pseudo-relationships, superficial relationships, and we wonder why we're so lonely. And the greater issue here is that we are actually created for relationships. <laughs> Do you know that? Like you and I, were created. one of the reasons we love relationships is because that's the way that God has created us. And God has created us in his image. You see, God himself exists in eternal, beautiful relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, peaceful unity and fellowship from eternity past. Our God exists in this loving relationship and community. And so when God creates humanity, he creates us in his image to mirror and to mimic what he is like to the world around us. And because God loves community and he loves relationship, he knows that we too are made to love that as well and to long for that it is fascinating to consider that when God created Adam and he created the world, listen, the first thing that is described as being not good is loneliness. It is not good that man would be alone. But can I suggest something to you? Listen, while some of you may be experiencing loneliness in your relationships with one another, even maybe in this room, maybe you don't have many relationships, but you, you hunger for that, you crave that. The saddest aspect of loneliness is not having a relationship with the God who created you. 
You see, you were created to live in relationships with one another, but listen, you were created to live in relationship first and foremost with the God who created you, to know him, to love him, to fellowship with him, to be in community with him. And your heart longs for relationships so much because it's a shadow of something greater, the greater relationship that you were designed to know and enjoy. And you can seek out all of the things in this life and in this world. You can find the greatest relationships in this life and this world. But if you have not a relationship with the God who created you, you are missing the very point of your existence. And God longs for you to enter into a relationship with him. But here's our problem. Our sin, our rebellion against God has separated us from him. We are no longer allowed to be in relationship with him because of our sin. Sin has fractured and broken the purpose of our existence. But God, listen, in his loving kindness, makes a way through his son, Jesus Christ, to bring us back into a reconciled relationship with him. Do you have true friends? I mean that seriously. Do you actually have true friends in your life who know you, who love you, who can confront you and challenge you and rebuke you if you need it? Do you have that? If you don't, let me suggest to you an application point this morning. You need to go and get invested in the life of this church. You need to pursue small groups or discipleship groups. You need to pursue the avenues made available to you in this community of faith to pursue deeper relationships. If you're in relationships right now, but you've not done this ever, or you haven't done it in a long time, I'm inviting you, listen, to grow in godliness today by going to the people in your life who love you and saying this to them, something to this effect. Hey, I know you love me. I know you care about me. I've got, I'm giving you full permission to say anything you need to say to me at any time about my life. I want to be transparent and humble and vulnerable. I want to grow in godliness. And I, I realize I need you if I'm going to be able to do that effectively. If you're just showing up here on Sundays, um, can, I just, can I just encourage you for a minute? The Bible says that's not the goal of the Christian life. Church is not a spectator sport. This is not a show. This is about worshiping the God who brings us into community with himself and brings us into fellowship with one another. And so if you're just showing up here and warming a seat, let me encourage you, move forward, take the next step, invest yourself in what will ultimately bring you greater joy in this life and in the life to come, community and relationships. I want to invite you to consider from this text, finally listen, to find the sacred delights in community, togetherness. I want to present to you, as this text says, the benefits of true community. And here they're laid out so beautifully for us in this jam-packed section, especially in verses 9 through 12. A passage that's often read at weddings, this idea of the threefold cord, it's not quickly broken. It certainly has application there. But what I want you to see is this passage speaks of all relationships, all godly relationships, And he lays out here some advantages and blessings of of community and relationships. And the first thing he lays out there in verse 9 is this idea of progress. Did you notice that? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. The essence here is, is understanding and believing that we are better together than we are alone. We can accomplish more together than we can ever alone. This is common sense, right? 
And we understand, by the way, this is one of the reasons why God calls us into a community, because God gives us a mission. It's called the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things we need to be reminded of often is that that's not a task that we can accomplish on our own. It is best accomplished in partnership with others. Not only can we do more together as we work hard and use our, our variety of gifts and abilities, we can you know, strengthen one another, we can encourage one another, we can exhort one another. There's such a great joy in working together to move the gospel forward. Progress. Second thing he identifies there is help. This is such a benefit to community. And there he says it like this, for if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, these are so straightforward, but can you just see the value there? Like when you're all alone, when you're isolated, when you're trying to do this life on an island and you fall down, you have nobody there to help prop you up. And I want you to see this not in the physical context as much as the spiritual context. You see, one of the values... And the benefits that are derived from community is this, that every one of us is tempted in a variety of different ways. I mean, be careful when you think you're standing firm. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Amen? I mean, every one of us is prone to temptation. Every one of us has a besetting sins. Every one of us, listen, while we are living faithfully for the Lord one day, can live unfaithfully the next day. And woe to us if we are alone when we stumble and fall. How beautiful and beneficial is it when we have brothers and sisters in Christ who we can call or who can come alongside us when they see that we are down and out and get behind us and lift us back up spiritually to pray for us, to minister to us, to love us, to help us see the things that we desperately need to see as we pursue Christ together. We need the help of one another. And third, notice this, that we need the comfort of one another. He gives this, this picture of comfort here in verse 11. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? The, the picture here, you have to imagine the ancient context where they were traveling maybe from one city to another, and they're traveling by foot. They don't have a, a lot of the luxuries that we have today, right, of, of the speed of travel, not only that, of, of, of motels at the side of the road to stop in. And when you're traveling in the ancient world, maybe particularly in a desert climate, it's incredibly hot during the day. It's exhausting, and maybe you couldn't get to your final destination, so you end up having to camp out overnight in the wilderness and if you know anything about desert climate, you know this, that while it is incredibly excruciating hot during the day, man, it gets cold fast at night. And to the traveler who's left alone, I mean, there he is in a whole world of trouble. I mean, it could be devastating, not only for his discomfort during the night, he could actually lose his life. He could freeze to death at night. He's saying, look at the beauty of being in relationships. When you have a friend alongside you, obviously the context there is you're out in the wilderness under the stars in the cold of night, but you're not alone. You can huddle up and share the warmth of body heat together. You can go through the cold, dark night together and know the comfort of a friend. Listen, some of you are in a wilderness season in your life. Some of you are in a dark night. Some of you are experiencing the coldness of life. And my heart breaks for you who are experiencing it alone. 
And you need to know that God doesn't intend for you to, to do it alone. God wants you to do it in community. God wants to comfort you, and God wants to help you. God wants to care for you, and he wants to do that through relationship. We desperately need one another because desperate times fall upon all of us. And we see that lastly as well in this idea of protection in verse 12. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Listen, there's protection in numbers. And here we see the strength in numbers. It's important to understand that having friends in community does not guarantee us against tragedy. It only says that we won't be alone when we face them. And every one of us is prone to attack. And we're all in a vulnerable position when we are alone and when we are weak and when we are tired. And community is God's way of protecting us and sustaining us during attacks and trouble. Consider Proverbs 17, 17 for a moment. It says this, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24 says it like this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, you may have a lot of acquaintances, but you're gonna find out who your true friends are in the midst of adversity, amen? We are stronger together than we are alone. That picture of a threefold cord bound together, strength in numbers. I was reminded of this as I was watching some videos on YouTube. Have you ever watched those when animal attack videos? I'm weird like that. I get on YouTube and I'm like, I think that stuff is fascinating. I get roped in. Before I know it, I've watched like 10 or 20 of these videos in a row. Okay, I'm like, where did the time go? But one of my favorite when animals attack videos is, is this, this one where a pack of lions is chasing a group of water buffalo, like hundreds of water buffalo. And what they do in this video is they isolate this little calf at the end who's clearly sick or injured and he's weak and he's hobbling and, and the group is trying to protect him. But eventually the lions kind of pick off this, this weak one. We know, how, we know how this works, right? Um, they, they always go after the weak and the vulnerable. It's easier that way. I mean, why risk going after somebody who's strong? They go for the weak. So, so the lions get around this little calf and they're surrounding this little calf. They're about to pounce and to tear it to pieces. Sorry to be so graphic. And then all of a sudden in, in the, the peripheral of the video, you see these water buffalo beginning to come around and surround the lions. Hundreds of these water buffalo, and these huge horns. And all of a sudden they start charging the lions and you see lions being bucked up in the air like 12 feet. They're like, Rawr! like going crazy everywhere. And a pack of water buffalo rescue this weak, frail little calf from the claws of the lions. It's a powerful picture of what happens when the body of Christ rallies together. Because listen, make no mistake about it, the word of God tells us in 1 Peter 5 that Satan, our adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you better believe he's going after the weak. He's going after those who are most vulnerable. He wants you isolated and he wants you alone. He doesn't want you reaching out for help because you're easy pickings. But you see in the context of community, there is strength and number in numbers. 
where the people of God can rally around each other, can come to each other's aids, where we can stand in the strength of his might. And when Satan attacks, he trembles, not us. This is the power of God in the context of community. More important, from protection from Satan, let me say it like this. Listen, you and I need protection from our own sinful, wicked hearts. The greatest enemy is not outside of you, it's inside of you. And woe to us if we do not have friends in our lives who can help us see what we cannot see in ourselves who can show us in love and in grace and kindness where there's sin that is destroying our lives, that is ruining us, that have the courage to come alongside us and even rebuke us when necessary. The fatal flaw, it's been said like this, is the person who cannot see and will not hear. If you get to the place where you cannot see your own sin and you will not hear it from others, listen, your demise is very near at hand. And the picture we have is, is this picture of this old king. That's, that's the fatal flaw right there. He would not take advice any longer. He would not hear it. He could not see it, and he would not hear it. And here's what happens to him. He goes down, and in contrast, the wise who have friends clearly, who take advice from those around them, who are willing to be corrected, they begin to ascend. You see, the biblical truths are always relevant. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I understand that correction is not fun, but it is absolutely necessary. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Our community is bound together by a common focus. Every community is. They're bound together by a set of principles, but a common objective and a common focus. Listen, in the church of Jesus Christ, this picture of the threefold cord that's not easily broken is a powerful picture of what binds us together. You see, all of us here are bound around a common uniting principle. More than that, a common uniting person, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's why as we look around, the diversity in here is so beautiful. Listen, we may have a lot of things in common, and we may have nothing in common, but if we have Jesus in common, nothing else matters. Yes. And this is what God calls us to in the body of Christ. Our enjoyment comes from not having common interest in hobbies, hobbies, but having a common love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, having a common expression that we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. And the preacher here ends this section in a really interesting way with this parable of this old foolish king and this wise young individual, this young individual who went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. He says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. You see, he's rising to ascendancy. And this statement is profound. Listen to this. There was no end to all the peoples, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. Here is this poor, young individual who rises to this place of prominence as a king. And people flock to follow him, though some refuse to. And that is vanity and pointless. Who is this king? Scholars have speculated. There's disagreement on this. 
It certainly can't be Solomon. He did not rise from a, a place of poverty. Some people think, well, maybe it was David then. He, he, he definitely came from a place of poverty, not maybe. Some people think maybe it's speaking of Joseph, and clearly um, he, he rose to ascendancy because of his humility and the wisdom that he had. But, but many scholars, and I agree with them, believe this is pointing us forward to Jesus. It's pointing us forward to the God who was born as a baby in humble conditions, was he not? In poverty, in a stable. But the scriptures tell us that he grew in the wisdom and stature of the Lord. From Jesus' own lips, I always do the will of the Father. The wisest man who ever lived was not Solomon, it was Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. And now, listen, as he has ascended to his throne, there is no end to all the people he leads. Amen? And if you have bowed the knee to King Jesus, and you follow him by faith, you have been added to all of the number of people from generation to generation, from century to century, from millennia to millennia, who have followed the King of Kings and been added to the community of the redeemed. And I just want to point your heart and your mind forward for just a minute as the worship team comes out. Let me just remind you, listen, the book of Revelation is so clear on this. There is a day coming in Revelation 7, we, you can read all about it. Listen, we're all of the saints, the community of faith from of old, uh, from present, and from those in the future who are yet to follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They will all gather around as one community, around their common unifying person, the person of Jesus Christ. And they will bow the knee to King Jesus and they will declare that he is holy, that he is worthy of all honor and of all praise. And they will follow their king and praise his name forever and ever and ever. Church, this is the greatest benefit and blessing of being part of the community of God's people. We get one another, but we get him. So let me invite you to stand. And let us, as a precursor to that day, unite our hearts as the community of the redeemed and sing the praises of our glorious King.